Hello and welcome to Developer's Journey, the podcast shining a light on developers' lives from all over the world. My name is Tim Bourguignon, and today I receive April Wenzel. April is a founder of Compassionate Coding, a conscious business that helps technical teams cultivate sustainable, human-centered software development practices built on a foundation of emotional intelligence. She has spent the past decade as a software engineer and a technical leader at various startups in the Silicon Valley. As an advocate for a more socially responsible tech industry, she also mentors technologists around the world and volunteers with organizations to teach coding to people from underrepresented groups. When she's not coding or speaking, she enjoys writing, running ultra marathons, and experimenting with vegan recipes. April, welcome to Dave Journey. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Oh, thank you for coming. Um, so let's start with this ultra marathon thing. So what is it? Sure. So an ultra marathon is anything longer than a marathon. So a marathon is 26.2 miles. And an ultra marathon is anything past that. So I got into doing ultra marathons uh, because um, I well, I never used to like running. And then uh, I started using this app, Couch to 5K, that basically motivates you to get up from the couch and to run a 5K, which is about three miles, just a little over three miles. Uh, and what I liked about it was it alternates running and walking. So it kind of eases you into that. So I did that in my 20s and uh, got in. So I started doing 5Ks. Then I moved on to 10Ks and half marathons. I ran a marathon uh, around my 30th birthday. And then I decided I wanted to take it to the next level. So I started training for ultra marathons. So I've done, uh, I did two 50Ks uh, a month apart, which was interesting. Uh, and then 50Ks, just a, a little over 30 miles. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was, uh, intense experiences for sure, uh, but enjoyable as well. And do you plan on running some more? Oh, for sure. Definitely. Um, running helps me find peace of mind and it helps me even work through coding problems or plan my next talk for conferences or whatever it may be. Uh, so right now my goal is to run a 50 miler next, um, which will be quite a, um, step up, but it should be fun. <laughs> not, not a trail one. Uh, yeah, probably. Tra I, I love the trails. I actually really don't like doing road races because they're hard on my knees and uh, I get kind of bored just looking at, you know, cement. Uh, so I always do trails, which means elevation, but uh, also beautiful scenery. So, Wow. I wish you all the best with that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'm actually going to run my, my first uh, trail marathon in, in June. So, Oh, awesome. Good luck. Thank you. I'm slowly ramping up there. Fantastic. Yeah. It's, I guess it's going to be soul crushing, but we'll see. <laughs> no, I think it'll be great. I think you're going to love it. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> I think, no, you're going to love it. You're going to love it. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I really like how you segued into it, going from this 5K to uh, to 10K to 20K. Or um, Yeah, I'm, I'm European, so I'm more thinking into cases than miles. <laughs> I wish I wish our, our start in the industry would look like that, but quite often we're just um, just dropped somewhere and and forced to run a first <laughs> marathon just out of university. Um, how did it look like for you getting into into our industry? Yeah, that's true. Um, it'd be nice if there were were a smooth path there for everybody, but no. But this keeps it more interesting. Um, but yeah, so I had a pretty traditional background. I started coding in high school, and then I studied computer science in college. 
And then when I graduated, I started working at Sony uh, in San Francisco and um, started there right out of school. And I learned there that I didn't like working for big companies <laughs> because uh, there's a lot of uh, bureaucracy and it's hard to feel like you're really having much of an impact because you're just kind of this cog in this huge machine, you know? Uh, so it just wasn't for me. Uh, and so then I started working in a bunch of startups. So for me, it really was, uh, you know, trial and error. So I tried the big company, thought, yeah, this is kind of boring and not really very exciting. So I went to the startup route, which was much more exciting. And I got to, there's much more variety. So that was fun. And so I worked at a bunch of different startups for uh, about 10 years up in Silicon Valley. If we remove the Sony experiment, um, you went small steps, going one startup, uh, doing probably a lot of different things and then changing the stack or how, how did it look like? Oh, yeah. I programmed in all sorts of languages and with all sorts of technologies. Um, even at Sony, like I, I was working on um, middleware for PlayStation. Uh, so uh, so that was in like C++. But then also uh, I worked on tools there as well. Since I was a new programmer, they had me work on tools too. And so I used some C Sharp uh, And um, even like Python and Java to a like a big mix of things. And then at the startups, you know, uh, I got a chance to learn Ruby on Rails, which was something I hadn't touched in school. That was the first language I think I, I tried that I hadn't learned any in school. And that was really fun. So I was hired there without having any Ruby background. Um, but they were using Ruby on Rails and they're like, you know, they could see that I could code. So, of course, they... Um, you know, were willing to hire me, even though I hadn't used Ruby specifically. Uh, and so I learned it on the job. And that was really fun. That was um, at a company called Zoodles. And we were making educational uh, software for children. How, how was the, um, I, I'm curious, how was the hiring process being hired with a technology that you don't know? Well, I was uh, lucky that the CTO was, um, he and I sort of see eye to eye, I think, even now in terms of uh, hiring people who have the foundational skills necessary without concern for the specific technologies. So I definitely now to hire more for attitude and mindset than for, you know, some specific technology skill set, because I think what's much more important is this ability to learn on the job and uh, the motivation to want to learn on the job. And so, you know, they did put me through like, you know, pro like programming things on the whiteboard or whatever, but, uh, and, and that's not how I choose to hire people. And I don't really agree with that, but it was enough that, um, you know, I could convince them that I had the, the technical chops, so to speak. How would you do it nowadays? Yeah. So I've, I've led engineering teams and done hiring. And now I advise uh, companies on hiring. Uh, it's definitely an area of interest for me. And uh, definitely no coding under pressure. I think that that uh, rules out a lot of qualified candidates. And so that means no asking candidates to write code on the whiteboard. It means no um, you know, forcing the candidate to code in a live editor while you watch. Um, nothing like that. Because um, I think that that creates unnecessary anxiety. And it's also very different from what you do on the job. Because on the job, well, if it's a job that I want, uh, it's, um, you know, there's collaboration, you, uh, you know, can think over problems, you can discuss them, you can research them, it doesn't, it's not this like, you know, code with a gun to your head sort of scenario, which it can feel like in interviews. So I'm a fan of uh, having a conversation with somebody about their past work. And asking detailed technical questions about 
you know, their work. Like, oh, how, why did you choose to implement it this way? Or why did you make this architecture choice? Why did you use this framework? Uh, and keep digging to find out, you know, the, you know, whatever technical uh, familiarity you're looking to hire for. If you ask the right follow-up questions, you can kind of tease that out by asking about past work. And it works too for, uh, you know, for students who are just graduated because you can ask them about school projects in a similar way uh, to that or intern projects or whatever they may have done. So that's kind of my methodology is having a human conversation with somebody and, you know, asking the detailed technical questions necessary to tease out, uh, you know, uh, all the uh, the details that I want to know. And you managed to get a, a glimpse of the mindset as well through this? Oh, for sure. Yeah, because you can ask too about, you know, their relationship with other people on the team. So for example, I like to ask developers how they've worked with product managers and what that relationship has been like and ask if there were situations where there was a disagreement and how it was handled or how do you handle trade-offs, discussing trade-offs with designers or product managers or anyone else on the team. Because I think that that's a good way to find out if there's empathy uh, there in the person and if they're, if they're able to put themselves in someone else's shoes and understand that. Uh, and you can also, you know, gauge how you can talk to people about how they like to learn things. And that's another way to get at mindset. Uh, Cause I really like to find people with a growth mindset as opposed to a fixed mindset. I mean, growth mindset, you know, comes from uh, the research of Carol Dweck, uh, who found that people who believe they can grow their skills in various areas are more likely to do so versus a fixed mindset, which says like, you know, I'm just not creative or I'm just not good with people. That's one that you hear a lot among developers. Like, oh, I'm good with the code. I'm just not good with people. And that's a very limited mindset. So I, I definitely look for that in interviews as well. Fascinating. I, I've tried to, to do it a few times. I've uh, led some interviews as well. I find it horribly uh, complicated to uh, to get a glimpse of, of a mindset in uh, in a few minutes. I mean, an hour at most or two hours at most. It's always um, this time box. And I find it really, really difficult to do this. Mm -hmm. Oh, for sure. It's, it's definitely, it's not uh, an easy thing. It takes practice. And I think there's always going to be some failure on the side of the interviewers. Like, for example, uh, you know, of course, there are going to be some people that we don't hire that would have been good candidates. And there's going to be people we do hire that weren't the best candidates. Like there's always going to be some failure rate as well, probably. But, um, but I think it does get easier with practice because you can you can start to ask the right questions and, um, you know, keep a rubric and keep it organized and, and try to keep it fair, too. Because another thing that plagues interviews, especially in tech, is bias. So, for example, when I walk into an interview, thankfully, I don't do them anymore because I run my own company. But when I used to walk in interviews, you can tell in the body language of the people there whether or not they expect you to do well. So a lot of times I'd be walking into a room full of men who were kind of looking at me disapprovingly, giving body language that they expected me to fail. And so it's like, if I do well at the interview, I'm surprising them because they have that. And it's not necessarily intentional. It's just an unconscious bias. They aren't used to seeing engineers who look like me. And so they're set up to think that I'm going to fail. And so that creates another challenge, which is why too any efforts to minimize anxiety in the interview is, uh, you know, worth the effort because then you won't miss out on people who are already dealing with stereotypes against their group. Oh, that's, that's very true. That's very true. I had this experience, um, doing some interviews for, for a bank I work for, I work for, 
And uh, we ended up after after a few months with uh, realizing that a lot of engineers were 30 years old, male, um, not married, no ch- no children. And it was very hard at that point, once we realized it, to uh, to counter this um, this move. Um, this this ideology was set up already that this was the culture we needed or we, we, we wanted to have. And it was very hard to uh, to go the other uh, the other way around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. It's it's difficult to turn it around once it once it gets to that point. It is. You spoke about the the growth mindset. Um, this is something mm-hmm. I've been trying to to nurture in the mentoring um, discussions. I have um, I've been a, a mentor. Or I'm still a mentor and, and a mentee at the same time. Um, how do you go about and and try to um, to grow this? Well, grow the growth mindset. Um, mm-hmm. In in the mind of of a, of a newcomer, for instance, of somebody coming out of university or started their, their their studies. Yeah, well, you know, I think a lot of times because I do a lot of mentoring too, and, and I think it comes down to trying to find what beliefs are characterizing their attitude towards their ability to grow. So, what I mean by that is a lot of people have self limiting beliefs because they've been exposed so much. Uh, negativity in the culture telling them, oh, coding is hard and, and you're never going to be good at this. And it's going to, you know, whatever negative things or that, um, you know, you're not going to be a real developer for many years or, or real developers do it this way. And all this sort of uh, negativity and arrogance that leads people to have imposter syndrome, which is, you know, where they believe like they don't belong, that they're not good enough to be there, which is widespread in tech. A lot of people feel this way. And I think it comes from the arrogance happening in the rest of the industry, kind of tr- people trying to prove that they're that rock star developer or whatever. So when I'm mentoring somebody, I try to break through to find these uh, limiting beliefs that are holding them back. So do they think they're they're never going to be good at something because they, uh, you know, have been around people who have been very arrogant about their abilities and very dismissive of newcomers? And, um, you know, so I try to figure out where it comes from. And so when I mentor, I try to find out where it comes from. And then that's a good way to get at the root problem of like, what's, what's really holding them back. And then, you know, the most powerful thing in the world is somebody who believes in their own ability to improve. I mean, I think that all progress, all positive hope that I have for the world comes from this idea that people can change. And that means people can improve their coding skills, but it also means they can improve their communication skills. I mean, with compassionate coding, like I teach people, engineers, how to have more empathy. And so that comes from their ability to believe that they can grow their empathy. So it's similar. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about coding skills or empathy skills. Uh, it's all a matter of that growth mindset. Excellent. Um, what do you do at compassionate um, programming? No, compassionate coding. Sorry. Yes, that's okay. Compassionate coding, uh, chosen that way because of the nice alliteration of the two C's, compassionate coding. Uh, so yeah, I've been running compassionate coding since 2016. And I have been, I do a number of things. So one is I teach workshops on emotional intelligence to software engineers. So uh, VPs or CTOs or team leads will reach out to me and say, here's some issues we're having on the team. Uh, and then I'll come in with a half day training session on how skills like empathy, compassion, communication, conflict management, all these things that developers sometimes dismiss as quote soft skills. Um, I show how they're essential to being an effective developer. And I actually don't like this term soft skills. Um, I 
encourage replacing it with uh, a term catalytic skills with the idea that our uh, these skills like being able to communicate, uh, being persistent, being introspective, all of these things help uh, engineers catalyze the application and acquisition of their other skills. So that's why I call them catalytic skills so that they're not dismissed under this term soft skills as opposed to quote hard technical skills. Mm-hmm. Cause they're usually the really hard ones to master. <laughs> that is very true as well. So yeah. So, so a lot of my work is teaching that. And then I speak as well at events uh, uh, and company company events and conferences uh, on the same, on these sorts of issues and how they apply Uh, and, um, yeah, and I'm working on an online course and a book too about compassionate coding. So it's really, it's a new philosophy for doing software development that really puts the focus on the human beings. So instead of it being all about the code and all about the machines, it's like, we're building technology for humans. So let's let that drive everything else we do, even choosing what framework to use. Let's let the end users concerns and the team concerns, let's let that drive even technical decisions. How did you segue into this catalytical um, skills? I mean, mm-hmm. leaving the, the technical side, maybe a bit aside and making this your day job, or, or are you still doing both at the same time? Yeah, so that's an interesting question that uh, too relates to a problem I see, which is that uh, developers like to think you can either be technical or not technical. Uh, I am both and I have always been both. And I think it's important for everybody to be both. I actually don't think anyone's non-technical ever because we all, I have an article called, if you can use a fork, you're technical, because I believe that we all have specialized skills. So calling somebody non-technical just doesn't mean anything. Um, and is also usually tied to bias. So a lot of people think, oh, so you care about people. So you, you can't be good at coding anymore. Right. And that's just ridiculous. Um, no, I haven't lost my coding skills because now I start caring about people. It's perfectly compatible to care about humans and to care about code. And that's one of the main tenets of compassionate coding. So it's kind of funny when people ask, oh, okay, so you don't, you're not technical anymore because that's ridiculous. Like the whole point is like this new philosophy is you can be both and we all should be both. Mm-hmm. I, I love the, um, the intro um, of the Agile Manifesto that is very often overlooked um, I mean, not the individual and interactions, um, et cetera, but just the sentence that is just above, which is we are uncovering better ways of developing software by doing it and helping others do it. And I have the feeling mm-hmm. the, that this by doing it is often overlooked and we're just talking about it and helping people do it, but not doing it ourselves. Um, and I'm guilty as charged <laughs> there. Yeah, I'm not sure. Is, is that a question? Or I mean, I do code, so I'm not sure what you're getting at here. Oh, I mean, um, um, that that was the uh, the the uh, presumption I had when when I asked this question. So I'm guilty as charged of making this uh, this assumption that you can be one or the other. Um, but you're absolutely right. Um, you can be both. My initial question was was more going as a how did you did you realize that this was a skill you had? And um, I mean this catalytical skill and and helping people grow into this direction. And how did you decide to make this part of your day job um, to, to leave definitely a part of your technicality aside um, and help people do stuff instead, instead of doing it yourself? So again, I do do it myself and I'm not leaving any technicality aside. I think that that's um, not an accurate way of characterizing it. Um, it is a little bit belittling, uh, condescending as well. Um, I'm sorry. But no, I, uh, 
Yeah. Um, so no, I decided to do this because the tech industry is in crisis right now. Um, it may not look like it, but it is. I mean, the lack of diversity is not just some little problem. It's injustice in the industry. It's, 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 you know, it's alarming how poor diversity is in tech. And it's because of bias that goes unchecked. It's because people don't care about this stuff. So that's one thing that got to a point where I was tired of being part of that, uh, that community and not speaking up about this stuff. Uh, burnout is a big problem in tech. And it's all related to the same thing, this inability to care about the human side of things. Uh, poor UX is another problem. Poor user experience uh, building unethical products. We hear about, you know, Google, Facebook, all the big companies doing a lot of unethical things, Amazon especially. And it's because we've left that caring for humans out. And so, you know, and, and it affects the bottom line because when there's conflict on teams and be, when you lack diversity, you also lack innovation. So I, after 10 years in the industry and seeing all of this, it got to a breaking point where I was so frustrated and disappointed in what was happening around me that I had to do this. So uh, compassionate coding came out of necessity because the industry, there was so much suffering going on and there still is. And so I had to do my part to help alleviate some of this suffering. I totally agree. So far, I've only managed to do it um, on my free time doing some mentoring on the side. But no, I, I would love to uh, to get in there as well during my during my day job. But so far, it hasn't didn't work. Um, did you just um, create a company? Just mid air quotes. Did you just create a company and get in there, or how how did you start this this uh, movement of yours? Well, I was inspired because I uh, in 2016 at the beginning of the year I also went vegan. So uh, as part of that, I went to a workshop on compassion. Because veganism is really about having compassion for all life. So uh, compassion is a big part of uh, the vegan movement. And so I learned about compassion and I learned about uh, some work going on at the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley in California. And that they're doing research into compassion and how it affects our health and how it affects our business life and everything. And so I started to see peer-reviewed literature coming out uh, supporting the idea that growing compassion makes us more effective uh, at our jobs and in our lives and makes us happier. And so I saw that there was a connection here um, and it was something that I saw completely missing from tech, as I mentioned. Uh, and so I put the two together and that's how I got compassionate coding was the idea that we all need more compassion and um, especially in tech. And uh, this was something that I can speak the language of the engineers and help them. Cause I mean, this goes down to the very, and this is why it bothers me so much when people act like it's two different things, uh, you know, caring about people and caring about code because good code shows empathy. If you name variables according to how they'll be most helpful to others, that's empathy. That is, you know, a human skill. So this, this, you know, how you do code reviews, uh, growing these skills has a very technical component. Um, to write good code is to write compassionate code, uh, you know, to test your code, uh, to write clean code, uh, is compassionate for people who will be maintaining your code. So compassion, you know, comes in at the code level, uh, up to the collaboration level, you know, up to how you're affecting your community and whether you're building software that's hurting people or helping people. So it happens at all levels. How would you go about and, and um, start um, a compassionate coding coaching in a team? Uh, so how I do it is, uh, you know, I speak with the 
leadership. I speak with people on the team, find out where the pain points are, because again, compassion is just about alleviating suffering. So I find out where the pain points are on the team, even the quote technical pain points, because every technical problem underneath it is a human problem. Um, And I firmly believe that. And so, you know, if it's uh, late delivery, whatever it is, there's ultimately a human discussion that needs to happen. And so I try to tease out what that is uh, so that I can bring in uh, the skills that will help the team the most. Um, and, uh, yeah, and it's, it's, you know, it's an art, it's a, it's art and science and, and, um, it's a lot of talking to people and understanding people and it's, uh, stuff that, uh, anybody can start doing by, you know, just caring a little bit more about the people on the team and about yourself, you know, cause self-compassion comes into this too. Engineers are known for beating themselves up, you know, like, oh, I'm such an idiot, you know, being hard on themselves and self-compassion is just as important here. Oh, absolutely. And then I, w- I would guess you um, alternate between between training, coaching, maybe pair programming or more programming with the team, just alternating different roles to get all the, the different facets of um, of the coaching you could um, you could bring to the table. Yeah, it all depends. Yeah, on the needs of the team and the circumstances. Um, I love working closely with the teams to come up with what will be most effective for them. Mm, cool, cool. You said you were doing teaching coding on the side to uh, to underrepresented groups. Is this part of the compassionate coding as well, or is this um, another project of yours? Uh, this is just volunteer work that I do with various organizations. So uh, in the past, I volunteered with Black Girls Code um, to teach you know uh, young women of color to code. Uh, I have uh, mentored with Hackbright Academy, which is a coding boot camp for adult women. Um, And uh, here in uh, San Diego, which is where I live now, I was volunteering with a group called the League of Amazing Programmers, and they have some scholarship students from low-income areas, and so I was teaching coding to them. So it sort of, you know, depends on um, uh, the time, but yeah, I I team up with other organizations to do that, and that's just my way of, you know, giving back to the community, um, because, you know, it's important to me that, again, like I mentioned, like, we need more perspectives and more equality in tech. And I, so I, I try to approach it from every level, people who are already in tech and then the people coming up into tech, just learning to code. Oh, that's really great. <laughs> Congratulations on that. Oh, thanks. Um, we, we mentioned a bit mentoring and, and helping people and, and coaching or maybe teaching. Did you benefit from all this when you became a developer? Uh, no, actually. I've never really had anyone I would call a mentor. Uh, I mentor myself. I read books uh, that inspire me and, uh, you know, make out plans for myself. And uh, so, yeah, no, I, I didn't really benefit from any of that. Um, but that said, I can still see a need for it. So that's why I'm, I'm happy to, to help out. Do you wish you had had this? No, not really. I mean, I think that You know, I think that uh, I try not to have, you know, I try to accept things as they've happened. And so, uh, so no, I mean, I think that in, in many ways, it's made me stronger having to, to figure it out on my own, um, you know, and I've, and I've had a lot of privileges in other ways. I mean, the fact that I even got to go to college and study computer science, you know, that's, that's a privilege that not everybody gets. So, uh, so I had a lot working in my favor in that way. So I feel like, you know, we all get handed the cards you were handed and um, we do the best with them that we can. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, and even now, like there are people 
it just the, the path that I'm taking is so different uh, from the status quo, and I'm challenging the status quo constantly. So there's nobody who could mentor me in that because I'm carving my own path. So I think it's just the nature of who I am and what I'm doing in the world that there won't be people who can mentor me. Um, and when I mentor people, I try not to tell them what to do or anything like that. I try my biggest, uh, you know, the big, most common advice I give to people is to get in touch with their own core values and let them let those core values drive their decisions. Because too often we're looking for other people to make our decisions, whether it's programming, quote, heroes, um, which I also don't think should be a thing or role models or whatnot. And I try to encourage people to instead look within because we all have inner wisdom within ourselves if we're quiet enough to listen to it. And I think that that is uh, can lead us in the best direction possible. This is, this is impressive. I, I, um, struggled a lot when I became a mentor, um, or when I had the first people, um, asking me a lot of questions and which lead, led to mentoring or finding, finding my place as a mentor, finding, uh, finding my balance between, well, answering when I should and keeping my voice down and, and trying to, to push back and, and ask more questions than I answer. This was really hard. Mm-hmm. How was it for you? Uh, yeah, no, I mean, it takes practice, um, for sure. I mean, I've read books on it and I have practiced quite a bit. And again, even with that, like I look within my own values and I think, okay, how do I best serve this person, you know, who's coming to me for help? And so, um, I look for how I can best serve them and I just keep asking myself that. So I keep reflecting on that and, um, you know, just doing what I can because all we can do is our best. So, you know, I don't think anybody's a perfect mentor, uh, but we just, we do our best and uh, help out where we can. Amen to that. <laughs> um, you said before mm-hmm. that you've had some, some pushback. Do, you have, uh, do people push back on, on what you are doing, this compassionate coding? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so the biggest example, I guess, is the whole Stack Overflow community, um, which has gone. So I, I, I put out some vocal, uh, I've been vocal about my um, issues with uh, Stack Overflow because I feel like it's a great example of a lot of the toxic problems in tech. And so I've been uh, pretty outspoken about that, written blog posts and whatnot, um, talked with some of the people at the company and uh, their community did not take kindly to that because they said, no, it's more efficient for us to be, you know, um, rude like this. And and, uh, so, yeah, so, you know, I've been attacked on you know, my blog posts and, um, 4chan and like people said horrible things there. So yeah, it's just, um, you know, a lot of people and on Twitter, a lot of people make fun of it because it's easy. It's a lot easier to make fun of being compassionate than to actually be compassionate. Um, it's always easier to make fun. And so, uh, one time somebody said, Oh, what's next compassionate code reviews, which is funny because that is one of the talks I give is compassionate code reviews, but they were using it as like, something that would be ridiculous. Uh, but, you know, that's just the nature of the work. When you're going against the grain and challenging the status quo, people are going to criticize it. Um, but it's resonating with enough people and, you know, enough people reach out to say, oh my gosh, thank you for talking about this. Because a lot of people have been suffering in silence uh, for a long time and uh, feeling fearful about talking about these things. Because again, they're going to be dismissed as being quote, non-technical or whatever. Um, and so they don't even want to talk about these things and I'm willing to confront them head on. So enough people have reached out and been really kind and supportive that it's worth it to me that I get some trolls and detractors along the way. Wow. That's very courageous. 
well, I don't know. I'm just doing my part. <laughs> and uh, how do you recharge your batteries um, to be able to uh, to sustain all this? Well, I've got this nice external charger. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I know what you mean. Uh, I take a lot of baths, and that's really nice. And I live in San Diego, so I'm by the beach. So I go to the beach a lot. I do yoga, um, and I run. Those are, and, and I read a lot to stuff completely unrelated to coding and um that helps me too because although it's unrelated i can make the connections so i'll read a book about relationships or something and i'll see the parallels to coding and then it will inspire a talk so even when i'm doing stuff that's not related to my work directly um i'll, I'll sometimes you know bring it in pull it in somehow but yeah but those are the ways that i think that i recharge but you do manage to uh to shut down your brain at some point and and do something else entirely mm-hmm Uh, yeah, I think it's important to do that. A lot of times developers think they have to be working on a million side projects and always coding and all of that. And again, that's part of the toxic culture I'm trying to work against. Uh, is, you know, we need that time to recharge. We need that time away from computers. Oh, yes, we do. <laughs> oh, yes, we do. My, my kids keep, keep me, uh, keep me, um, keep me in check with us. <laughs> But otherwise, I have been guilty. <laughs> I've been guilty in the past of uh, having too many sides projects at the same time and thinking thinking about my work all the time. And that sure was uh, was not a fun time. A bit of toxicity, yeah. That would be the right word. Yeah, I think we all struggle with that, you know, because there's a lot of pressure. Yes, there is indeed. There is indeed. If if you if you could give um, an advice to newcomers in, in our industry, um, either somebody coming from a CS degree or, or maybe somebody coming from a bootcamp, um, since it's, it's really uh, growing in the last years, what, what would be the advice you would like to give? Yeah, I think the advice that I would give uh, ties back to something I said earlier, which is that it's really worth taking the time to get in touch with your own core values, what you really care about in life, what's important to you. And to question anything that's just accepted knowledge in the industry, because there's a lot of stuff that's been around a while in the industry that we need to question. And so, you know, whether it's how to interview people or something that was written a blog post 10 years ago that people still reference, like everything, this industry is young comparatively, like in terms of uh, the world. And so question everything as you go and definitely listen to your inner wise mentor to lead the way on your journey. Wow. Do you do some some meditation or something like this? I do. Yeah, I do meditation. Uh, not as regularly as I'd like. I've been in phases where I've done it every day, but um, now it's sort of as needed. <laughs> but it's it's much better when you can do it as a preventative thing. But yeah, I, I do enjoy meditating. I meditate as well, and this is this was a realization for for me that I had overlooked a whole part of myself and. Um, for 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 thirty years or something, and I realized this when I finally understood what what meditation was all about, and that was really a realization. Saying, "Oh, and if if I've missed all this um, about my life until now, what have what have um, missed um, else? Um, what other topic did I overlook?" And this was really the start, the starting point to questioning everything. And since then, I've been questioning even more and more and more. So that was really a powerful realization for myself. That's great. Okay. We unfortunately are, are really coming to the end of the time box. Um, is there any topic that um, we should have talked about and you wanted to segue into, but you, we, we missed it on the way? Uh, nope. I could just give people my contact info mm -hmm. if that's helpful. Sure. Where would be the best way to contact you? 
Yeah, so um, the best way to keep in touch with Compassionate Coding is CompassionateCoding.com. I have a mailing list there that people can sign up for, for announcements. Um, I'm on Twitter at April Winsel and at Compassion Code. And that's just because of Twitter character limitations on the username. <laughs> and um, yeah, and uh, coming up in uh, May, I'll actually be over in Europe for the New Crafts com- Conference in Paris oh, you will. Uh, in May. So I'll be speaking. Yeah, I'll be speaking there. Uh, so that's uh, and that's in May. Oh, the conference is amazing. I've, I've been there twice. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. <laughs> yes. Oh, wonderful! Yeah, I'm really looking forward to Say it. Say hi for me for the uh, for the uh, organizing team. They are amazing. For sure. Okay, great. So in May in Paris, um, people can get a. a grasp on you and and meet you uh, in real life, uh, as some people say. Yes. Otherwise, Twitter. And compassionatecoding.com. Fantastic. Yes. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I wish you a great time until May. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, have a great night. And this has been another episode of Developer's Journey. We'll see each other in two weeks. Bye-bye. Dear listener, if you haven't subscribed yet, you can find this podcast on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, Spotify, and much more. Head over to www.devjourney.info to read the show notes, find all the links mentioned during the episode, and of course, links to the podcast on all those platforms. Don't miss the next Developer's Journey story by subscribing to the podcast with the app of your choice right now. And if you like what we do, please rate the podcast, write a comment on those platforms and promote the podcast on social media. This really helps fellow developers discover the podcast and those fantastic journeys. Thank you.